If you've been with us for a while here, you know that we've been in a series since the beginning of January um, called Conversations with Jesus, where we've been looking at various conversations that Jesus had with men and women, uh, specifically in the Gospel of John. Uh, You know, John chapter 1 through chapter 12 covered about three and a half years of Jesus' life. And then once we got to chapter 13, everything began to slow down a lot. Uh, John takes seven chapters to cover about 24 hours. So 12 chapters to cover three and a half years, seven chapters to cover about 24 hours. And then we're going we're gonna to slow down even further because we're going to be spending the next three weeks in John chapter 17. Uh, and that whole chapter is Jesus' conversation with his heavenly Father. Uh, it's a conversation that happens through prayer. As we go through that this morning, uh, we'll have the verses up on the screen. You can follow along that way. As you look around, you may notice people following along either in a Bible app or uh, maybe uh, a, a paper Bible. A lot of people use that. If you are here this morning and you would like a paper Bible to follow along in and you don't have one, our ushers are coming down the aisle, and if you'll just signal them somehow, they'd be happy to put uh, a Bible in your hand. And if you don't have one at home, uh, please consider taking this one uh, with you. Uh, we think everyone should, should have access Uh, to a Bible. There's a story told about a couple of guys who worked in a warehouse together, and one day uh, one of the men told the other that he was trying to clean up his language uh, because he had been uh, asked by his pastor to teach the third grade boys Sunday school class. And the other man said, you? What in the world were they thinking? He said, I bet you 10 bucks you don't even know the Lord's Prayer. And the other man said, I do so. Guy said, prove it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And the story goes that his friend was so astonished that he reached for his wallet and said, I guess I owe you 10 bucks. We laugh uh, because uh, most of us think we know the six lines of the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray, a prayer that often we refer to as the Lord's Prayer, but a lot of uh, Bible scholars feel that it would be better called the Disciples' Prayer since it's what Jesus taught the disciples to pray. And they say, actually, the real Lord's Prayer is found in John 17 that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, those those three are called the synoptic gospels. Uh, There are nearly 20 different mentions of Jesus praying. Uh, Besides his brief prayer in the garden where, where he prayed, let this cup pass from me, right? And his prayer on the cross when he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those two, besides those, we don't have the content of any of those prayers. We just know that he prayed. Um, In John's gospel, we hear Jesus praying very briefly in front of Lazarus' tomb, chapter 11. 
Uh, and again in chapter 12, right after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, when he prayed that God would be glorified. And then when we come to John 17, we have a whole chapter devoted to Jesus' prayer. De- depending on your translation, uh, almost 700 words in this one prayer. And in this prayer, it's unique because Jesus wasn't off alone by himself as was often his practice. For this prayer, he was right with his disciples. Um, Becky and I uh, were talking the other day about a man that we knew. He's since gone to be with the Lord. But when Bob prayed, uh, when he prayed out loud in, the, in, in your presence, you felt like you were on holy ground. Um, there, there was something about Bob's relationship with the Lord that, that just came out in his prayers. Uh, the way Bob prayed was um, intimate, it was familiar, and yet at the same time, it, it had this deep sense of awe and, and respect that, that made it holy. Uh, you, you really felt you were on holy ground when you heard Bob pray. But as wonderful as it was to hear Bob pray, I think it, it was nothing like what it must have been like for the disciples to hear Jesus pray. Can you imagine? Uh, there in the upper room, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. He had shared a meal with them. He had told them that he would be leaving, but that he would send the Holy Spirit. He He talked to them about how they were to remain connected to him, the vine, they, the branches, were supposed to remain connected to him by loving others. He told them that the world would hate them because of his name. But, he said at the end of chapter 16, you should have peace in the midst of trouble because I have overcome the world. And then we turn the page and we read in John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying these things, all those things I just said, those were all in that upper room. When Jesus finished saying these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you just as you have given him authority over all humanity so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. Let's pray. Lord, in in light of this amazing prayer, uh, I find myself even struggling for words. Uh, But I know this. Uh, I know that that prayer we just sang needs to be true. We need you to speak, and we need to understand in a way that changes our lives. And so we pray that you would do that as we uh, explore this prayer of the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus' prayer in John 17 can be uh, pretty easily divided up into three sections. 
uh, verses 1 through 5, which I just read, where Jesus prays for himself. Uh, Verses 6 through 19, where he prays for his disciples, these uh, people that he's been with for uh, the, the last three and a half years. And then verses 20 through 26, where he prays for you and me, which is incredible, I think, that we have... Uh, this in our Bibles, that the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve this so that we could hear Jesus praying for us, for you, for me. Uh, It's amazing to me. Uh, This morning, uh, we're going to just look at these first five verses of Jesus' prayer. And these first five verses are literally packed with deep, rich theological truth, but... They also give us guidance on how we should pray. And that's my hope this morning is that we'll understand something not only about who God is, who Jesus is, but how we can pray. And so one of the first things that uh, I think we should take notice of when Jesus prays is the intimate nature of his prayer. Six times uh, in this prayer, Jesus refers to God as his Father or Holy Father or Righteous Father. And that might not jump out to us as as unusual because we've become very accustomed to addressing God as Father in our prayers. Uh, In fact, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, he told them to say, Our Father in heaven, right? Say say these words. And and so we often follow that. And, And Heavenly Father is very, very familiar language to us when we pray. But we need to understand that that simply wasn't true before Jesus taught his disciples to pray that way. There is no record of uh, any Jewish people, let alone a a Jewish rabbi, uh, praying to God as Father in any Jewish literature prior to the, the 10th century. It simply didn't happen. It wasn't done. In verse 5, Jesus points to the eternal nature of this father-son relationship he had with God. But John tells us in his first epistle, 1 John, uh, that God loves us so much that he calls us his children. Uh, Paul will say in Romans 8 that we are to call out to God as our Abba, our Daddy. Um, even though it's familiar language to us, I, I think it's important that we never take for granted that we have a Father in heaven who loves us and loves to answer our prayers. I, I don't know if we understand how unique that is to those of us who call ourselves Christians. Buddhism doesn't offer this. Islam doesn't offer this. No other faith tradition offers this. Only in Christianity is there this promise that a human being can know God, can can know him deeply, intimately, uh, personally, affectionately, can, can talk to him and ask him for things and actually be heard. Only in Christianity is there this promise that the living God the maker of heaven and earth would stoop to be known by us. Of course, we know that he knows us, but he stoops to be known by us. That's amazing. We have a father 
in heaven. The next word that should jump out at us, I think, in this prayer is the word time, or some of your translations might say hour. Jesus says, Father, the time has come. And if we've been paying attention as we've been working our way through John, um, we'll remember that uh, uh, over and over again, Jesus has said, it's not time. It's not time yet. Uh, when his mother wanted him to uh, address uh, the, the issue of, of running out of wine at the wedding. Remember that? Way back in John 2. What did Jesus say? It's not time. My time is not yet come. Uh, when his brothers wanted him to go around Judea and, and perform some miracles, kind of show off His miracles, sort of a traveling magic show, I think is what they were thinking. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. In John 7, uh, when, when a crowd of people tried to, to seize him, John tells us that they couldn't lay a hand on him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. Happens again in chapter 8. They're unable to lay a hand on him because his time had not yet come. But now... Jesus says, Father, it's time. The time has come. The time for what? We should be asking, right? Well, from the very first chapter of John's gospel, John has been pointing ahead to something, right? And that something is the cross. From the, from the moment that we heard John the Baptist uh, see Jesus coming, point to him and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. From that moment, this, this time, this hour, is where John has been going with this story. Later, on, on this same night that Jesus prayed this prayer, he will be arrested and beaten and uh, subjected to various mock trials. By 9 a.m. the next morning, this is evening sometime, we don't know what time, but by 9 o'clock the next morning, Jesus will be nailed to the cross. That This hour or this time that Jesus is preparing for is not just the cross. We need to remember that. It includes his resurrection and his ascension to the Father, as we'll see as we move through this prayer. But all of this, his death, resurrection, and ascension is summed up in this statement that Jesus makes that the time had come. It's time. As one commentary points out, it's not simply the hour that Jesus has been preparing for, though. It's the hour that the entire world has been anticipating. It's the fulfillment of a, of a promise made way back in the Garden of Eden that God would send a rescuer to save humanity from sin. It's the moment when everything will change, when sinful creatures will once again enjoy intimate fellowship with their Creator, when, when spiritual life triumphs over spiritual death. And this gives us a clue to understanding the, the next theme in Jesus' prayer. He's talked about his father. He's talked about the time has come. And then he prays about glory. 
Jesus asks the Father to glorify him so that he can, in turn, glorify the Father. Five times in these five verses, Jesus uses this word. He'll, he'll use it three more times as we move through the rest of the prayer. It's an important word, glory, in this prayer. Sometimes in this prayer, Jesus will use the word as a noun. Sometimes he'll use it as a verb. As a noun, it means, it means the weight or, or worth of someone. So the glory of God speaks of the weight of his majesty or his splendor. It's the, it's the manifestation or the display of his divine goodness, of, of who he really is. That's what God's glory is. Sometimes Jesus will use it as a verb. And when we talk about glorifying God as a verb, we're talking about the appropriate response to his divine goodness, his glory. Uh, the, the root of the word glory or glorify is doxa. It's, it's the word we get doxology from. Um, it, it means to respond to God for who he is, all of who he is, and all that he has done. God is glorious, regardless of, of whether or not anyone understands that or acknowledges it, but we glorify God when we celebrate his divine goodness, his glory. Um, you, you've noticed that I've started substituting goodness here with glory. Why am I doing that? I'm doing that because of a, a text in the Old Testament that we've looked at before. Uh, it's one of the clearest places that we see God's glory defined. Uh, it's in the last part of Exodus 33 and the first part of Exodus 34. I'm going to take a moment just to have us look at this because I think it'll help us understand what Jesus is praying for here. So after God had rescued Israel out of slavery to Egypt, uh, we know that the people kept longing for the things they had there. Uh, even though they were in slavery, they, they thought there were benefits to living in that empire. Uh, they even wanted to worship the gods of, of Egypt instead of the one true God, uh, the one true and living God. And so at one point, uh, they, uh, they pooled all of their gold together, they melted it down, and, and they formed it into a... Uh, formed it. That's an interesting <laughs> non-word. They formed it into a golden calf for them to worship instead of worshiping Yahweh. Of course, this made God angry. And he basically said, fine, if you want this golden calf to lead you to the promised land, go ahead, I'm not going with you. God steps away. And Moses begins to beg God, don't do that. If you don't go, don't send us. Don't do that to me. Moses was, was passionate about the presence of God in his life and in uh, the collective lives of, of his people. Well, amazingly, God did change his mind and he said that he would go with them. And then Moses, I guess based on the success of, of that request, he makes this audacious request of God. In Exodus 33:18, he says, 
Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will call out my name Yahweh before you. Moses asks to see God's glory. God agrees, saying that he will show Moses his goodness. His goodness. And when we turn the page into chapter 34, we see this event described that was being set up in chapter 33. God tells Moses to stand in the cleft of a rock on the mountain. And then in verse 5, we read, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. Uh, some of you have heard me say before that these words in verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34 are the most quoted words by God about himself in the whole Bible. Uh, 27 times in the Old Testament. And the reason these words are repeated so often is because God wants us to understand who he is. There's a lot of messed up ideas about who God really is. Moses asks to see God's glory, the weight of who he really is, and God causes all of his goodness to pass before him. And when he did that, when he caused all of his goodness to pass by what he revealed to Moses was his name, his compassion, his grace, his patience, his love, his mercy, and his justice. In other words, God said, all my goodness will pass by, and then all of God's perfection passed by. That's what God's glory is. That's the definition of God's glory given to us by God himself. God's glory is his divine goodness. So let's take that back into John 17. I'm asking you guys to think hard this morning. I, I know that, but I, I need you to, to do that, okay? We need to use our brains here. Uh, and, and this part of Jesus' prayer stretches our brains a little bit. Maybe it's because what we have here is God talking to God, which, you know... It's, Sparks start happening a little bit, right? Uh, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is talking to the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And Jesus asks the Father to glorify Him, the Son, so that He, the Son, can glorify the Father. If we jump down to verse 4, Jesus says that glorifying the Father is what He's been doing through His whole ministry. And now the hour has come, the time has come for that glory to reach its apex, its, its pinnacle. Now, how is that going to happen? Amazingly, through Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension back to the Father to enjoy the glory that he had before the creation of the world, verse 5. He's going back home. Scott McKnight says it powerfully, I think. He says, The hideousness of a brutal crucifixion, public, 
nude bodies, humiliation, suffering, suffocation, somehow in John's gospel glorifies Jesus and therefore glorifies the Father. How so? At the cross, and by this we mean his resurrection and ascension as well, God's glory is on display. Don Carson says something similar when he said, and I I think this is powerful, the hideous profanity of Golgotha means nothing less than the Son's glorification, which in turn glorifies the Father. Now, right in the middle of this language about the Father and the Son being glorified, we see the results of this time or this hour that Jesus has been moving toward. We see it in verses 2 and 3. Throughout his whole ministry, Jesus has been saying that this is why he came. And then he prays, glorify your son so that your son may glorify you just as you have given him authority over all humanity so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. You see, God the Father glorifies the son by giving him authority over all humanity. And part of that authority You know, authority makes you responsible, doesn't it? You don't get to just order people around. You have authority, the buck stops there, right? Part of Jesus' authority was taking on the responsibility for our sin. The sins of every human. Gave him authority over all humanity and made him responsible for the sins of all humanity. And the result of that was that he, the Son, Jesus, could give eternal life to everyone that the Father has given him. You see? This is what the Philippians passage, uh, Philippians 2, that, that Lucas read from earlier. This is what it was talking about. We are the beneficiaries of the Father and the Son receiving glory. How? We get eternal life. This is amazing. What is eternal? Yeah, thank you. What is eternal life? Well, verse 3 gives us one of the clearest explanations of what eternal life is. And the way Jesus defines it may not be the way we tend to think of it. Sometimes it's presented differently than what Jesus says here. Because in verse 3, he says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. See, we miss the meaning of eternal life um, if we, if we uh, take it to mean just living forever. Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God knowing Jesus Christ. And this knowing isn't just some sort of intellectual assent to a a bunch of things that we say are true about God. It's an intimate knowing. Uh, The kind of knowing that Jesus is talking about is, is the kind a married couple has with one another. Uh, The kind that, that the very, very best of friends have with one another. 
Again, Don Carson says that eternal life isn't so much about everlasting life as it is about personally knowing the everlasting one. Let me say that again. Eternal life isn't so much about everlasting life as it is about personally knowing the everlasting one. It's a quality of life. Jesus called it abundant life that does go on forever, but the focus of it is that intimate relationship with God. And again, Christianity is the only faith tradition, the only religion that offers that. So now, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to go back and forth here. How does that fit with what we learned about God's glory? See, I think sometimes we, we, we say amen to this and we say amen to this without seeing how they come together. Remember, Moses asked to see God's glory and God caused all of his goodness to pass in front of him. So how does Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension put God's glory on display? Here's what I think. Exodus 34, 6 says that Yahweh is the God of compassion and mercy. On the cross, we see his compassion and mercy in that God saw our helpless state. We were helpless. We couldn't get out of it. And at his own cost, he made a way for us to be lifted out of that helpless place. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. If that is not God's compassion and mercy on display, I don't know what is. Exodus 34, 6 says that God is slow to anger. You know, God could have way back at the very beginning just said, that's it, I'm done. But he didn't do that. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God is slow in judging the world because he doesn't want anyone to die without knowing Jesus, without knowing what he accomplished for us on the cross and in his resurrection and ascension. Exodus 34, 6, that God is abounding in hesed love, faithful love. Of course, John 3, 16 tells us that God's whole motivation for sending Jesus to die on the cross was what? Love. For God so loved the world that he gave. Exodus 34, 7 says that God forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Friends, on the cross, Jesus took on our sin. He took it on himself, paying the penalty for our sins so that we might experience God's forgiveness. And 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, if we agree with God, that's what confession means. If we confess our sins, he forgives our sins based on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Again, Exodus 34, 7 says that God doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. And 1 John 1, 10 tells us that those who refuse God's offer of forgiveness through Jesus are still held responsible for their sin. All of this 
is because of God's goodness and His glory. See, I think way back in Exodus 34, God was foreshadowing His glory, His goodness that would one day be put on display in Jesus as He went to the cross for us and was raised to life, defeating death once and for all and ascending to the Father to secure eternal life for all who would receive his incredible gift of knowing and being known by God. I said at the beginning of my message that this prayer was thick with theological meaning and and it is and we've only just barely scratched the surface of what's in just these first five verses. There's, There's a whole lot more that we don't really have time to unpack this morning. But I also said that I believed it was a model prayer for us to learn from. And so as I close, uh, let me suggest just a, a few ways that we can pray as Jesus did. The first is this, develop an intimacy with the Father in your prayer life. Jesus prayed to his Father. It was an intimate relationship that affected how Jesus prayed. And so for us, when we pray to the Father, is it, is it just a phrase that we've become so accustomed to, it just rolls off our lips? Or is there an intimate knowing, an intimate relationship that is driving your prayer life? That's the first thing. Secondly, I think we learn from this prayer and we can pray like Jesus by developing an urgency concerning the time. Uh, Jesus prayed with an urgency in John 17 because he knew what time it was. Paul encourages believers to make the most of the time. Understand what time it is. Understand time from a kingdom perspective. So the question is, do we pray that way? Or do we pray like it's just one more prayer in a long line of prayers that we will pray? What are are the divine moments that God is serving up? What is the time for you that he wants you to step into and pray about? Third way that I think we can pray like Jesus uh, is to make sure our prayers are marked by asking for God to be glorified. Boy, do we like to pray about ourselves, huh? Far too often we pray for the things we want rather than for the things that would bring God the most glory. So I I think we can begin to ask ourselves, how would all of God's goodness, His glory, best be displayed in the situations that we are praying about? We should be praying for God's glory in all of those, right? Whether that's sickness or relationships or finances or whatever it is that we're concerned about. We need to pray for God's glory to be seen, to be put on display. There's a lot of ways that he can do that. And then lastly, uh, I think uh, that we must pray that people will come to know God, come to know Jesus Christ, come into that intimate knowing, that intimate relationship with him. I I think this is one of the things that most displays God's goodness, his glory, is when when a person experiences 
what Jesus calls eternal life from knowing God and his son Jesus. So do we pray for people to come into that knowing? Your friends, your family members. God, glorify yourself by drawing them to yourself. God, show your goodness to them. Show them how loving and compassionate and merciful and good you are so that they can come into this relationship with you. And along those same lines, if you're here this morning or watching from home and you don't, you don't have that, start by giving God glory that way, by receiving that offer of eternal life. Again, knowing him that offer to know him and be known by him. That's the best way you can give glory to God this morning. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to, to come back up. I'm going to move over uh, to the piano and I'm going to lead us in a prayer that, that just invites God to be glorified in, in all aspects uh, of our lives. And uh, as God maybe brings to mind areas in your life that aren't, yet surrendered to him where he's not being glorified, uh, this, is a, this is a great time uh, to take care of that and to do that. So uh, let's go ahead and